Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Okay, make way for yet another accomplished, multi-talented, creative woman. Alex Strauss is a New York Times columnist and featured lifestyle, travel, and trend writer whose work has also appeared in the Financial Times, Cranes New York, Time Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, Condé Nast Traveler. She's also an award-winning author whose books include The Joy of Funerals, Based upon availability, death becomes them, unearthing the suicides of the brilliant, the famous, and the notorious. She's also the editor of Have I Got a Guy for You, an anthology of mom-initiated dating horror stories. Then there are her essays, some of which have been anthologized in Sex, Drugs, and Gefilte Fish, the Hebe storytelling collection. Her short fiction pieces have appeared in numerous publications. Then there are the awards and fellowships, which include the Wesleyan Writers Conference, the Skidmore College Writers Institute, and the Sarah Lawrence Summer Program. Alex has taught fiction, creative writing, critical thinking, and writing for magazines for more than 20 years. And enough already. Time to meet and get to know Alex Strauss. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for that introduction. That was really impressive. Except that it wasn't complete. I mean, there were other things to talk about, but then we wouldn't have much of a I can't believe it. It really sounds like I've accomplished a lot. Savor it, for God's sake. I'm going. I'm going to go home and run around naked after this. (laughs) Too bad. This is a podcast. (laughs) I need to go back to kind of the beginning. Did you always feel that you had something to say? That's a great question. I, I think I did. I absolutely thought I had something to say, but I didn't fall into writing until my mid 20s. So a year ago. (laughs) It was a very exciting time in New York. Naked Angels was just coming to the surface, which really gave the independent theater area here in New York a voice. It was very much like the one that Robert Redford has out in, uh, you know, Sundance. So it was what Sundance is Uh for film to theater here in New York City. And it really was that time where you felt if you had something to say, if you wanted to write a play... You could write a play, and Judy could hang the lights, and Andy could build the stage, and Liza could make the costumes. And so you didn't have to go to the barn. You didn't. We could have built a barn, too, and people would have come. <laughs> right. and Build a barn, and they sure. would come. <laughs> if only. And there weren't great plays for women. There was just Wendy Wasserstein at the time, and she was brilliant, but her plays had been done over and over. And I thought, well... If you write a play, they have to put you in it, because at the time I was an actor. I know, shocker. Oh, and uh-huh. I wrote a play, and it was so evident that I was such a better writer than I was an actor. I mean, I was an okay actor. I had been acting since I was 12, and I had done commercials and a soap opera. So but you, you earned a living, so to speak, even as a young person. I really understood money as a kid. I loved money. <laughs> uh-huh. I went, you know, I just, I had a lemonade stand when I was nine. I sold cards that I created when I was 11. I really loved What did you do, money. get your own apartment by the time you were 12? Yeah, yeah, I was assessing out other people. I had a whole hooker system here. It was was really divide and conquer. And um, I wrote this play when I was maybe 23, 24. And I just, I never went back to acting. So you were out of college when you wrote this play? Yes. I didn't study theater or I got into Tisch um, at NYU. School of the Arts, where I went also. And uh, their thinking was, you can't audition outside the department because you're here 
to learn acting, you obviously don't know enough. But I was very fortunate. I had had my SAG and equity card and everything like that already. And I thought, these are prime years for me and I'm in New York. Why would I not audition for things? So I got my degree through Gallatin was Pretty much, you give them $100,000, they give you a piece of paper. <laughs> well, sounds fair to me. But let me just ask you something. So you were acting and performing at a young age. Yes. And why did that happen? Were your parents pushing you to do this? Or did you have a, a thing that you just wanted to be seen and heard? We joke that I came out of the womb singing, oh. like in an Ethel Merman way, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh-huh. That was probably on me. I, I think my parents actually tried to stop it. And they were not very successful at it. I, I really, I really loved performing. And so you were successful. I don't know if I was that successful. It definitely put me through private school. And I definitely enjoyed doing the commercials and things. When I was in L.A. for pilot season one year, I was auditioning for a commercial. And the guy said, it was for Stetson Cologne. I'll never forget this. I was 20 years old. I'd never rented a car. I didn't know where the... Hell, I was going. We all had Thomas guys. There were no cell phones. There was nothing. GPS. You know? mm-hmm. yeah, there was no, we didn't, mm-hmm. were no Starbucks. There was nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally nothing. And it was you and this this piece of paper that you just kept flipping and seeing if you could figure out how to get somewhere. And he said, I need you to be laid back and perky. And I'm very analytical. And I had no idea. I'm like, I, that. those are two. Opposing. Like, how can you, you be <laughs> laid you back so and perky? And I That's said, oxymoronic almost. Is that the right word? Well, whatever. Stupid is better. And I said, I'm, I'm so sorry, but I, are you sure? And he said, yeah. And then he did it for me. And I, was, and I really thought in that moment, I'm never going to survive in the climate out here. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't. I, that, well, did I, you grow up in L.A.? No, I grew up here on the Upper East Side. And then you got work on both coasts. I went out to L.A. to see about making my way as an actor. I thought there's definitely more television film opportunity out in L.A. Back then there was. I'm 20. Let me try it. Yeah. It was awful. It's a level of hell Dante forgot to discuss the Inferno. <laughs> well, you can always write, you know, a part two. So you came back and you wrote this play. Yes. And then what happened? It got a couple of uh, trial runs. We put it up. Did you um, want to act in it? No, that was what was fascinating. I think I was so interested in seeing how it was all going to come together and how to fix it and tweak it. And I, abs- you know, originally I thought, this is it. I'm going to have a piece in this. And then I didn't want one. I just wanted to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I think that also was so clear to me that that's why you stay with writing. And then I wrote a novel and then I did articles and that's and then that was it. There was no turning back. So somewhere inside of you, and I talk about this phrase a lot with the women I have conversations with, there's this strong sense of self that I can do this and I'm gonna try, as opposed to, oh, I don't know, I'm not worthy. You just went for it and it worked. I think you have to be so passionate and dedicated. I think as an actor I don't think I got any role because I was better than anyone else. I think I was very tenacious. Mm -hmm. I think any moron can say, all four of us? And (laughs) Newcrest Jill, I love the flavor because it was was done in the West. I think to write is a little bit different. There is this structure and you're telling a story and you have a voice and there are all these concepts and you definitely tell the story differently maybe than someone else. And I happen to be... A very good writer, which is a surprise. I mean, that's just a surprise to me because I'm dyslexic and I think everybody told me to go into any other career that I possibly could go into. But to get to your question, I'm sorry to be so long-winded, it didn't occur to me not to do it. 
I just thought I'm going to have to work really hard to get there. Well, I think what's so interesting is that you went, in a sense, from one extreme to another. You went from something so public to something so solitary. I guess so. People say that about writing, and I've never really felt that about writing either, because I think people are at Starbucks writing, and I think people... Not back in the day. I guess that's true, too. Though I brought that office to anywhere, because at some point you do want to get out of the house. So your computer, you know, you're part of this coffee culture nation. Mm -hmm. You know, have computer, will travel. In my first novel, I thank Starbucks as a home away from home. I wrote most of my novel and start with the homeless people and (laughs) the other psychos. But, (laughs) you know... Starbucks at the time was extraordinary. It had the free internet. It it really let you sit there for hours drinking a cup of coffee and using the facilities. And there were people who knew each other. Yeah, you had it a really community. It really was amazing. They were, they, were, they were a great company back then. But, you know, today, people work from home. Yes, so more that, and more so. Yes, exactly. I'd so like to think I was ahead of the curve. Ahead of the curve. Also, just I was thinking about it, when you write articles, you're interviewing people. So yes. it's not a solitary endeavor. And I think when you write a play, I mean, I walk around the apartment and I'm all those people. My neighbors absolutely think I live with people. <laughs> I'm hearing voices. <laughs> At least they are, and I'm not. So, least, right. That's how I know I haven't lost my mind. So you kind of crossed the line, you know, with playwriting, novels, articles. Let's focus first on articles. How did this come to pass, you know, in terms of getting hooked up with the New York Times? I wrote my first piece for them in 1999, which was about why I liked funerals. It was a personal essay. And it was in the Lives column, which was this coveted section that everybody wanted to write it just you know it's what you read on Sunday in Mm -hmm. the magazine section with that last page right and I love personal essay there's no fact checking really (laughs) you know um, and who can fault you for how you feel that's that's also pretty good I like that a lot too and um it's so organic to be able to tell a story and to tell it in a very raw, honest way. I don't think there's anything bad about being honest. I think people confuse dark with something that we shouldn't watch. I think people confuse honesty with things we should turn away from. And I think our need to connect, especially now, is so deep. And we're missing the boat with each other so often because we're on our phones and everything that... Because we're so disconnected on some level. Yeah. Which is also fascinating that uh, I was very, again, I was very fortunate. I had a wonderful editor, Eric Copage, who really just believed in, in me. And I had originally submitted a different article and... He was just great, and that was my first piece. And Well, let's not gloss over this. Why do you love funerals? So I'm an only child, but I'm the only, only child as far back as you can trace in my family. No kidding. Yeah, so my parents, who could have had a plethora of children and should have had more than one child, chose, can't say selfishly, but in a quasi-narcissistic kind of They're the kind of people who absolutely should have had more than one child Mm -hmm. or no children. And we were not close with other members of our family. So the only time I got to see family members, and usually we were were also lucky. It was like, oh, great Aunt Edna, who was 92. but, But finally, you get to see where everybody else who they are and where you fit in and where you belong. And so I loved funeral. You got to see hear stories and see people you never met. And I got a sense of connection that Mm -hmm. I was lacking. Mm -hmm. And it became a big platform for a lot of my work, certainly in the fiction arena and probably 
for some of the the darker, um, not so pretty topics like suicide and things like that. Not that anybody's committed suicide in my family. I'm very interested in story and I'm very interested in connection and I'm interested in how we're all connected to each other and why some people filter in and out of our lives at certain reasons and certain times, for certain reasons and at certain times. The ebb and the flow of it. Yep. But it's interesting that you cross the line between fiction and nonfiction, that you're that you're comfortable how's this word? In both genres. You know I really am. I love both. You don't have to be wedded or just, you know, categorized. She's a nonfiction writer or she's only a fiction writer. I think that's really great when you can sashay back and forth. I'm ambidextrous and double jointed. So I think that probably Well that's is interesting also. because you know what I am? I'm ambilateral. Oh. Do you know, yeah, it's not interesting. I only can write with my left hand and I eat with my left hand, but I can't throw a ball with my left hand and I do with my right hand. Does that so am that I destined you, for greatness? Yes, of course you are. Okay, feel free. You're already there. Oh Sandy. Oh, listen. Oh Sandy. God love you her. Are there. <laughs> so take us on my favorite word, your trajectory. You write this first personal essay for the Times about why you love funerals, and then they say, Hey, no, you got something with Alex. No, oh, they didn't it never, say that. It never happens that way. Oh. If only um, you still have to start. From oh, start from, for the from, next absolutely. one. Absolutely, right? you know, sort of absolutely. But at the same time, I was working on my first novel, also called The Joy of Funerals. But it was a collection of short fiction and a novella that linked the previous stories together. So there were eight short stories and a novella. And in each short story, someone has died. And you meet these really wacky, intense, raw, strange women. And then in the novella, the main character, Nina, is a funeral attending junkie. And she now goes to all the funerals you've just read about. So you meet the same characters twice. And you get a different perspective and and understanding of who these first women were and how all our lives are interconnected. So I was writing fiction. I was also working on a variety of articles for different publications. And I would say it really wasn't until the past 10 years, about 10 years ago, I really started contributing to The Times as a freelancer on a more regular basis. I just want to ask you parenthetically, is death funny? It's No, it's not funny. It's It's just real. I mean, everyone will experience great loss. Maybe some people won't experience great love, and I hope that everyone does because it's extraordinary. But we will all experience great loss, no matter what. That's true. It's a very interesting concept because the more universal something is, but the more specific you can make it, the more people will understand it. Before we get to your books, when you started submitting articles, were they your ideas or were you, quote, commissioned to do this? Did you get a phone call from the lifestyle editor at the oh, time? wish. And, you only wish. It, oh, that, it oh, so that that's easy. not, that will only happen, I assume, if you're on the staff, if you're on staff. It varies. When you start having a relationship with some of the editors, I think they get to know your work and what your capabilities are. And sometimes they will call you and say, hey, we have this great article. Would you write it? Would you be interested in this? And then it's like, would I? Um, but very often it's a hustle. You call and you it's no different. It really, in some sense, it's no different than, you know, going on these auditions for Stetson Cologne, where you try to be both perky and laid back. <laughs> you call with an idea and sometimes they love it. Sometimes they hate it. Sometimes they want to change it. And then, you know, if you're lucky, you're working with great editors. I, I work, you know, the New York Times is just the most extraordinary place to freelance. And my editors are 
are fantastic people. They are dedicated and honest and wonderful. And really, we're still at a place where every story matters and telling the truth really does matter. We're in this crazy climate right now without getting too political where, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we really do have to set the example every day. We're not supposed to be the example. We're supposed to set the example. And every piece of information has to be accurate. And there's still... The place that really cares. I mean, other places, absolutely other magazines. Well, the bar is held so high. It and, really and is. And we're, we're grateful and thankful that there still is a New York Times. I think print matters. Is yeah. You know, every, listen, you know, everything on the web is there forever. And that's a very scary, that's a very scary thing. And we're at a very confusing, very, um, everything is in our face. We're just drowning in information. And, and when you're drowning in information, how do you know what to grab onto and what's real? Yeah. So how do you know which life vest to – if you're drowning in the water, not all of them are, are going to keep you afloat. For sure. It's very hard. So we really do take it seriously. They really do take it seriously. And I'm, I'm just honored to be part of something bigger than myself and to work with a group of people that really take it so seriously. Is that one of the biggest things that gives you – uh, professional joy. Yes. But it also sounds like you're able to spread it all around, whether it's writing a novel or writing a play, whatever it is. I mean, your career, in a word, is extremely eclectic. It's tangible. I think that's what's so interesting. The novel, is if, if I die tomorrow, yeah. you know, that novel is out there. You can't take it back. It's different than the web because if, if the whole world comes crashing down, it's like that um, Twilight Zone where the guy is standing there on the big thing of books and unfortunately his glasses have broken so he can't read, read them. them. <laughs> and all he wanted to do all day was read books. But those books are still there. There is something very tangible about print and newspaper and magazines and books. You know, once that iPad or the battery runs out on your nook or whatever it is, you know, you can't get it back. Yeah, you're fucked. That. I'm glad you said the fuck word because it's such a favorite word of mine. But I've left an imprint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we put people in a box. Why shouldn't Why shouldn't we be able to write in every genre if we're good at it and, and we're, we've got something can cross to say? borders Let's and boundaries. Cross, yeah. Whether we're binary, non-binary <laughs> in our careers. Well, either you write or you don't write. Right. And, and for me, that is an unnatural act. To sit in front of a computer... Although when I was working at Winds and, and these other radio stations, writing the news is a different ball game, and you're dealing with fact, and that's not the same. I mean, there's so many times I thought of, oh, I'd love to write a column for Modern Love, and then so I sit at the computer and I just can't do it, mainly because I'm much more verbal and I feel much more. Have you comfortable. thought about uh, talking into, into a your... tape recorder? Yes. I know, I know. That's something. I think you just need to sit down and do it. Yeah. I can't believe you are having writer's block. You are so smart and funny and charming. I guarantee you if you put the tape recorder on and just start talking, you'll have something. I think that what might, for, in my case, and we're making this about me, which you know, we I don't love. We should make this well, about it. We've we got an hour. <laughs> it's more the fact that it would be easier for me for someone, quote, to interview me, you know, and then, you know, pose the questions. I'm going to come to your house. <laughs> there you go. And we're going to put the the iPhone, you know, tape recorder. Under, tape uh, under the couch. Um, we're back to you. This is about you. So 
take me on why you wrote the books you wrote. Let me mention them again. So Death Becomes Them. I love the fact that you did the sex, drugs, and gefilte fish. I know that's not a novel, but I mean, where did all this stuff come from? It really is make your own career. You can't just send something out and think someone's going to buy it. it. It doesn't, you know, for every piece that I sell, I'm sure there are five other ideas that didn't. And I, I like to write, and I think it's important to... It's a hustle. There's a hustle. If you're not ready for the hustle, then you've got to find something else. And we're in a moment where everybody's getting their 15 minutes and then some between yeah, yeah. YouTube and yeah. between the podcasts, which are fantastic, and the bloggers and these Instagrammers and, and everybody. Everybody really does have something. That's why there's so much out there. It's finding the stuff, the repeat offenders, the people who are really dedicated, the people who are really in it. I do feel we're going to survive. Yes, because you can't stop. And you need to keep doing it. But what made you write about unearthing suicides? Who committed suicide that so intrigued you to start this? Oh, my God. There have been so many, right? frighteningly. Um, well, for the novel, The Joy of Funerals, it, it made a logical sense that I had tapped into an area that people may not have been ready for. It was 2002. And I think Sex in the City had just finished, maybe, and um, Six Feet Under was gaining in popularity. Mm-hmm. Or maybe Sex in the City was still going strong, but there was this, people were ready for something edgier. Right. And I was a little bit early. As a trend journalist, it's hard because sometimes you're so early for something that people aren't ready for it. We're really ready for it now. We were ready for it maybe a couple of years ago when Netflix started and Hulu and Amazon. If that, if those were available when The Joy Funeral came out, we really would have had more traction on it. I just don't think people knew what to do with it at the mm, time. That's a good point. But And the suicide book also very much similarly that people, there was, it was white space. There had never been a book on the most notable suicides. And I'm a pop culture whore. Mm-hmm. And there had not been a book on the most notable suicides and understanding them and understanding suicide and mental illness and addiction. And that came out in 2010. And unfortunately, since then, there's obviously been an onslaught of notable suicides, more so probably now than any other decade, paired with the bullying and the social media and Mm -hmm. everything else that, again, it was a little early. I mean, people weren't ready to talk about it as we are now. I think the pop culture slant helped a lot because people are always salacious. You know, they always want a good story. And we were in the celebrity moment. But I think it was still a little bit dark for people where, again, you know, they would be fast and furious with it. Now, not saying that people are going to run out to the stores and, and buy it or, or download it. But if you want to, that would be fantastic. <laughs> but I, there are these wonderful stories that we didn't really get to hear. And I had wanted to put a collection of these amazing people who unfortunately took their lives and and that we will be not shortchanged, but we're never going to see another painting by Van Gogh. We're never going to hear another right. poem right. by Sylvia Platt. We're never going to hear a song by the fellow from Nirvana. There are all these moments that we've not been cheated by, but... These were extraordinary people who 
whose life ended too soon mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. And I really wanted to pay both tribute and I wanted to understand them. The biggest challenge was how do you tell the same story 20 different ways and be creative about it? So for Kurt Cobain, we literally followed him 24 hours up until his death. So we really got to track him. That was the style we chose to tell his story. Um, Anne Sexton, who was extraordinary and brilliant, was the most methodical out of everyone and planned her suicide almost a year to the date prior to her committing you know, this final. Yeah, yeah, she mm-hmm. was stripped, she, um, stripped down naked. Um, put on her mother's fur coat, put mm-hmm. on all of her jewelry, had a couple of drinks, got into her car and turned on the ignition. Mm. So that was fascinating. What I uncovered was all of the writers had father figure issues. All of the actors really had some form of depression. All of the musicians were the most murky. murky. They were the ones that, like Elliot Smith, it was. it still hangs in the air whether or not he stabbed himself or he was stabbed. Uh, Kurt Cobain also was very, very, there was a lot of, we really went over the autopsy reports and things to make sure that the heroine, that he did it himself or that there wasn't somebody else in the room with him. There was Mm -hmm. a lot of murkiness. Um, The people in power all chose poison. Some of them double-dipped. Hitler um, chose poison and I believe he shot himself. So that was fascinating. All of the artists were visual. Every single artist bled. Every single one of them were cutters, which was or or I take that back because Van Gogh shot himself. You know, speaking of him, not that long ago, I saw the mm-hmm. movie of At Eternity's Gate, and we all know a lot about Van Gogh, of course. But this was, I don't know, it's just some more potent, visceral. I just really, I was there with him. If you know, I don't know if you've sure. seen the movie, but I it, haven't. But he shot himself in a field and then walked back to his hotel room. He was literally drenched in blood. Yeah. Yeah. But it was very visual. Mark Rothko slit his wrists and took pills. But, you know, he was found in, like, full Jesus formation on the floor. Blood was everywhere. Diane Arbus slit her wrists, got into a tub of warm water, and also took pills. Did it shock you how many people fit into this anthology, in a sense, into this book? How many of them are out there? No, the sadness is we could probably have a second book now yeah. because of all the people that um, have followed in their footsteps, which is... You know, we have a suicide issue, and we're not really discussing it. Dealing with it, yeah. A lot of people, when, um, what was it, 13 Tapes or 13 Reasons Why or whatever that um, Netflix film is, that they wanted to stop because they were concerned that there were would be copycats. Because they're afraid every time we open a window, people are going to jump out. The problem is we're not teaching people what to do when they see the open window. Mm-hmm. So we have a generation of people who don't have coping skills. It's not that we should stop showing the films. We shouldn't stop producing the movies or the TV shows. We need to teach people how to cope with what's going on, that suicide is never an option, even though it it feels like it. Right. We need to teach, and these kids especially, the ones who are being bullied, the ones who feel they don't have another way out, the ones who want to make a statement. Or who have survivor's guilt, like the Parkland students. Yeah, gosh, you know, it just it which weighs so heavy you just, on your, your heart. Your heart breaks. Yes, it just, yes. It, that we're not, we're not helping them get through this, and we need to figure out a better way to do that. Mm. We're falling short somewhere. 
So on some level, and I'm not demeaning this, you're providing this public service, aren't you? I would love to think something that I've written has helped. I absolutely have gotten some very thoughtful letters. I, When I speak about these subjects, I definitely have people come up to me afterwards. And I really am a, a big believer of connecting. And if we're not there for each other, then what are we doing? Right. We have got to be there for each other. And I'm a big believer, too, if somebody doesn't hear you the first time, scream a little louder or or find someone who will listen. We just have to be screaming in the right way. This ease with which you can move from one topic to another, does that surprise you? It doesn't. Maybe it should. I have friends who only write fiction. I have friends who only do nonfiction. It didn't occur to me that why limit myself? I, I, it just didn't occur if I could write on rocks, you know, sell them uh, do the Virginia Woolf rock collection. It, it just didn't occur to me. Why Why not? Do you get calls from the Times, for example, and says, hey, Alex, we'd like you to interview Mary Jones or Bob Sometimes. Smith. And sometimes. how do you feel about that? Sure. Who wouldn't? You know, it's a birthday gift. That's a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, I've interviewed some extraordinary people and, and some not extraordinary people. Want to share some of those? Yeah, absolutely. Both? Um, I spent a weekend with Carrie Fisher once, and that was uh, while Obama was being sworn in. She had an Obama pajama party, (laughs) and it was almost like my head was going to explode with, I just couldn't, here we are having one of the finest moments in America that we're, you know, we're, we've got a black man who's going to be president, Uh thank God for at least eight years, and I'm I'm in a a rented home in D.C. with Carrie Fisher, with Princess Leia, (laughs) so I had interviewed her a couple of weeks back for the Times because she was on tour with her book and we did a night out, which was uh, at the time the night outs were you don't say you're just this fly on the wall and you're sort of experiencing the evening and, and, and how it's going to unfold. And that was really amazing. She was a great she was a great writer and obviously a, a, a brilliant person and very troubled and did you become friends? We did become friendly. We really did become friendly after that. Um, we just got each other mm-hmm. and I'd interviewed Kathleen Turner. That was interesting. Is I had, that a diplomatic description? You know, everybody brings to an interview. Uh, some are some are really wonderful. Some people you really have to work hard for the interview. Some people don't want to be interviewed, and then you wonder why did you agree to be interviewed. I'm very confused on this. I've learned that if a celebrity uses your name correctly in a sentence, then you've won them over. And if I have a really hard time, it's not until they can say my name on their own in a sentence that I I really then I'm okay. But sometimes you do have to pull somebody aside and say, listen, what can I do to make this better for you? Because you seem not happy. (laughs) And and then you have to say, we're going to do the article regardless. So that would be under the rubric of diva? It's, I don't ever think somebody's a diva. I think maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're cranky. Maybe they didn't realize they were agreeing to something when they agreed to it. Maybe I have no idea. I, you know, like if I, if I have to pay my American Express bill, I just pay the bill. I, I have understood the rules beforehand. So in other words, you're not going over every charge. Oh, I would go over every charge, but I, I, I write them a check because that's the understanding. So yeah. I think that I'm always I'm always <laughs> right. confused of the people who are surprised when the interviewer gets there and they're like, what? I'm being interviewed. I'm like, yes, because you agreed that, you know, we, we. But there's that thing about being in control. I've had people who are difficult to interview or 
or don't want to be there or they got cranky or they didn't the feel like I take that then. back Betty for Dan was probably the worst most difficult person I've ever had to interview it, this was my first major interview there was no there was really no internet you could only get the internet at the library there was a horse and carriage outside delivering <laughs> milk and um oh you look good for you thank age. you and uh you know i was in my good girl armani suit i mean i really stepped up i didn't know a lot of feminists at the mm-hmm. time i had to call mm-hmm. my my mother's friends to see if she had any feminist friends and she only had one and I literally got the interview 24 hours beforehand, and all I knew was that Betty was getting a Lyme's disease test at Lenox Hill, and that she was on. She was we were re, she was releasing a new book, and that was a good chunk of what the interview would and be. And who about. are you writing this for? It was a beautiful glossy magazine that doesn't exist anymore, and it was based out of the Hamptons. And she has a home, or at the time had a home in the Hamptons, and. You know, we would also certainly talk about the feminist movement and how she was, you know... So seminal. And influential and created it Mm -hmm. and everything, bra bra burning and all. And we went to Jim McMullen's. That's how long ago this was. It was on the Upper East Side uh, on 3rd Avenue and like 78th Street. And there I am in my good girl, you know, Armani suit. I've I've done as much research as I could at the library. The Femistique is nowhere to be found. There's like two Barnes and Nobles. (laughs) They don't have any copies. Somebody has taken it out from the library. She walks in in a muumuu, and she looks like she has woken up and rolled out of bed. And I had an emergency tape recorder and a and my regular tape recorder. There were no iPhones. There was no yeah yeah yeah. I was maybe twenty six. It was this was the late nineties. And um, I put them both on the table, and I know I'm in trouble because she orders a martini. And I'm thinking— And what time is this? It's maybe 12.30. Okay. And she tucks the, the tablecloth into the mumo. As in for her napkin? Yeah, for her napkin. And I'm thinking, this is not going to go well. So I have my list of good girl questions and my really hardcore questions at the end because if anybody wants to walk out— at least you've gotten most of what you need. That's why you always save the the hardest questions till the end, depending upon how. Oh, that's interesting. The person is is acting, and so that you just at least you you have most of what you need. Okay. And then sometimes you need to change, you know, whether it's going to be a think piece or a straight interview or a Q and A. Depends also sometimes on who's there and if they were pleasant or if they left the building. So I start with you know Betty. When you look back at women then and where women are now, what are you most proud of that you've accomplished? And it was like she was channeling Betty Davis, and she's like, that's a stupid question. Oh, jeez. And she starts screaming at me. And in I, this public place. In this and everybody is staring at her. And I, I, I and this I, is before the martini. This is the martini. This is before the martini. The martini eventually arrives. And we're six, seven questions that I've asked her, none of which she wants to answer. And again, you know, the rec- the recorders are are recording, and I, you know, I'm now on question number seven. <laughs> I haven't gotten one answer. I skipped from asking questions about the women's movement to the book because I think at least the book she knows what you know can't be that hard. You're yeah, on, let's promote you're on the book. fucking book tour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I start, Betty, how is this book different from some of the others that you've written and have been so prominent? And she's like, I'm not going to talk about my book. You read The Femistique. And I hadn't read The Femistique because I couldn't get a fucking copy of The Femistique because I'd only gotten the interview, you know, the day before. And she's yelling at me and looking at me and I'm. I'm thinking, you know, she's going to know whether or not I'm lying. And I, I, I don't have it in me to lie. I'm not. I'm, I really am an honest, hardcore. 
Truth teller. Truth teller. And I said, and you know, the other rule is when in doubt, stroke, you know, start yeah, with yeah, a yeah, compliment. Yeah, and yeah. So I said. Love your moomoo, yeah. Betty. <laughs> <laughs> Have another drink. Yeah. So I said, Betty, the good news is the femme mystique is nowhere to be found because people are still reading it and buying it and wanting to hear your voice. I said, the bad news is I got this interview yesterday and I haven't had a chance to read it yet because I couldn't get my hands on one copy. And she looked at me and she goes, this interview is over! And she gets up from the table and I'm watching the martini, you know, and I, yeah. and I grab for the martini because I, I, I'm, ha- I'm looking at her, you know, like handing it up like Oliver Twist. And I'm thinking three things. I'm thinking I'm going to be fired. The recorders are still I'm, this is going to be worth millions when she's dead. And uh, I got to figure out a way to get her back in the seat. But can I ask you the word? There wasn't a fourth like I could start to cry. No, that was not going to happen. I was going to do this interview. She was I was going to I was going, you know. Where it's a four-alarm fire. I am very good in a four-alarm fire. I am everybody's 4 a.m. call. I can reattach a limb. I can. Uh, wow. I, I have a to-go bag prepared. So you didn't take it personally? I'm like sure. Words, uh, you listen, I'm sure she. maybe she didn't like me. Maybe she. I, I No, I didn't take it personally. I just thought, I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm going to lose my job. I've got to do something. So what would you do? Uh I started, then I went to whatever any good Jewish girl would do. I went to someone's health. So I'm like, Betty, I know you're going to have your Lyme's disease, you know, test in an hour. And I don't want your blood work to be. Or your pressure to go through. Right. And I'm very concerned. So, and I'm still got the martini. I'm like dangling this martini in front of her. (laughs) I'm like, so it would be great if we could all just take a collective breath. I really care about your health. And I said, you know, I was so excited to get this interview and. I, I just want to do a good job, and I want to, I, you know, everyone's going to be so excited to read this, and she's calming down, calming down, calming down. And I'm stroking, 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 and then at the end of stroke, you know, it's it's my turn to strut my feathers, and she finally sits down, and when she sits down, I said, and a little fucking respect would be appreciated. You go, girl. And then Holy she answered cow. every single question. Wow. Did you write about that? No, I I did not. That's, that's I finished a, the article. We had to make it a and a uh-huh. because that's all we had to work with. That is a definite take-your-breath-away anecdote that you just shared. No, it's not an anecdote. It's a story. But wow. it, it was, you know, and then I thought, wow, did you make me work for that? I mean, like, that was, there's no reason. I didn't under. you know what? I also didn't understand. I didn't, and I still don't. Why would you need to put somebody through that? Because you can. But it makes no sense. We lost time. We could have, we didn't get to eat. I didn't get to eat. Uh, you know, uh, she had a second drink. And then she, you know, left. She she and Elvis left the building and she went for her <laughs> blood work. And I, I just. Uh, is that just is that a story that just stayed with you for uh, throughout for your career? 100%. Yes, that, that you could always, um, you know, retrieve. I will forever tell that story. But it's a no, badge but for of you, you know, Yes, it's that's a, right. It's a war, yeah, absolutely. I got a little, you know, pin. Listen, there's not one person who will speak kindly about her as a person. She's a difficult person. May she rest in peace. But that said, <laughs> what she contributed. Yes, you can't was, take that away from her. And I, and I, and I wouldn't want to. 
I just don't think you have to be an asshole to do it. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because she's all about women. So who wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to help another woman? Yeah. I'm only, you know, I'm 26 at the time. It's my first major, you know, person that I'm interviewing. But it was a great story. And here we are, you know, years later. And we're, you know, I'm sorry we don't have martinis. (laughs) But that story and what happened to you is now so much a part of your DNA. It is. It's a, it's a good little story. No, it really but it is. also, I don't, I don't mean it, character building for you. How great to have had that happen more at the beginning of your career. I guess. I'm going to run home after this and listen to the tapes. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I I don't, I, it just was so, I mean, I... I Look, that anecdote, that story about Betty Friedan poured out of you. But it's it's one that I, I've certainly told a few times, and I, I and love still, being able to tell it. Right, and it, it still is not, it's more than just factual. Yeah, it's you know when I when I write a one woman show at some point it'll definitely be in there. It'd be, it'll be you know. part of it. Gloria Steinem is probably you know if and I can only hope she's listening to this is probably nodding <laughs> back and forth herself you know saying yep that was Betty. They didn't get along so well. Well, they're also two very different personalities. Yes, but both so intrinsic and so helpful to the women's movement. Well, just seminal. I mean, yes. there is no women's movement if without those two. Women. Yeah, there's a, a huge generation that that. They have no idea who these women are. So is that part of what you do when you are lecturing and when you are teaching? Are you also educating on that level? Is that an important job for you as much as the writing is? That's a hard question to answer. I I think people should know Cole Porter and Demi Lovato, you know? And did I even pronounce her last name correctly? You did. You did well. Um, Because, you know, if somebody's making a cultural impact, and I'm not saying... She's more important than good old Cole. But I I do think that we should know who some of these important people were. Look, Mary Martin, Ethel Merman, clearly not my generation, but they were pretty important. You know, Billie Holiday, important. You you have to know who some of these people are. Well, they live on because of their work. Yes, as important as knowing Madonna, cultural figure. Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. to know who she is to understand some of the work now that other people... You may not like Barbara Streisand, but you have to appreciate what she contributed. Yes, but I think what makes me nauseous is this term of so-called influencers. These women that you named were influencers, but not in the same way that they are today. And it is just so nauseating. Maybe I'm showing my age, whatever. You're not you're not showing your age. It's a style. You know, I think the the influencers are where the bloggers were. So I think it's all shifting. And I think you're going to continue continue to see a shift. The bloggers really aren't the really diehard ones, the ones who really were great at their job are still around. But the bloggers sort of died off and you've got these influencers now and the people who are very into Instagramming and boomeranging and all the things that people are doing and Snapchatting and, you know, MySpace disappeared and now you have something else. So there are things that are culturally of the moment. I mean, no one's using squid ink and parchment paper. (laughs) But, you know, we do have to move with the times, but I don't think it's going to, there will be the next. There will always now be the next. It's just that the next is moving at such a fast pace. It's hard to keep up. Are you speaking about that from a personal perspective? Yes. I have to appreciate what the influencers culturally do. I don't know. I don't 
think it's wise that we pay people to say certain things. I don't think it's a good way to have these sponsored things from people whose word we're supposed to take just because that's the whole point of having of being reliable. If they're being paid by other people, there's a difference. You're either a spokesperson or you're something else. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. That's when it gets blurry. And I'm not saying people, listen, I interviewed an influencer the other day. I watched her make more money than I'll ever make in a year while sitting at the table with me, just taking pictures and posting about her ring and the cappuccino, and where we were and what she was doing. And it was mind blowing. But and I don't want to take that away from her. But it's just a very different, it's a very different job. So I think we have to recognize that these people exist and they're making a living at it. I just don't know if it's going to be forever. But it is a cultural moment. You can't take away this cultural moment that we're having. We had cultural moments last week. We had them last year. And that we're going to have them next week as well. Something new will always be happening. Doesn't mean I agree with all of them, but I would be doing a dessert. I wouldn't be doing my job correctly if I wasn't fascinated by them, if I didn't tell the fair story. And open and if, to them. 100%. You have to be. I write about pop culture. Mm-hmm. I write about lifestyle and trends, and this is it. This is a, a fascinating moment. Wow. We're running out of time. So tell me what you see for you. How's this in predicting the future? Well, there's so many predictions. There's so many. <laughs> Good God. Um, I can tell you what I'm what I'm working on or if that Yeah, sure. So I just finished my next novel. Uh, it's called The Unexpected Delays, which I surprisingly unexpectedly I was delayed with. And um <laughs> it takes place at an airport and really has to do with the comings and goings and these women who all pass through the airport at different times, but they're all interconnected. And really asks the question, not who are we before we take the trip, but how has this trip changed us? Who are the women who return? Mm. So I thought that was really, that was something that fascinated me. And I think the airport is really going to be this next big trend. It's its own character in the novel. But now that TWA is bringing back the hotel. Yes, yes. I saw that in Times Square. The big plane landed there. Really going to be amazing. Um, I think we're really going to see the airport acting as a a whole new vehicle, no Mm -hmm. pun intended, especially now also as we're having more and more issues with aviation and planes and whatever. But people are fascinated by travel and the airport is an amazing beast. I mean, it's just a crazy, awful, amazing Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in that. And hopefully we'll get some. It just went. I just finished it two weeks ago. So hot off the press. huh? I guess so. Yes. Mm -hmm. And hopefully somebody will want it. You know, the the column at the Times is is really great. It's called It's No Secret. And I interview couples who are married and we we really learn about what what they've learned along the way of being married and how marriage has changed them and how they keep it together and how they stay married. We didn't talk about that. How do you find those couples? People write to me. I hear stories all the time. I'm constantly looking for the next interesting Mm -hmm. couple to Mm -hmm. profile. I cover a lot of weddings as well for them. Uh, We just interviewed a transgender couple that was fantastic that we live in this moment where Two different people who were two different sexes in the beginning of their biological life had both switched over, and they found each other. And thank God we we are allowed to let anybody marry anyone 
And, and celebrate that. And celebrate that. And you know what? That was a great piece because I really do think that will make a difference in a court hearing at some point. It's somewhere in Indiana or ever somebody wants to get married or isn't sure of who they are or whom they are and whatever and will give somebody else a voice. You can't take that back. It's printed. So I love that. It really is a gift to be able to, to write about stories and people like that and to have people trust you to, to write to to do to speak for them or with them. Well, Alex, this was great. Thank I you mean, so much. no, this was I, so thoughtful I, of you to I, invite I'm not, me. It's not thoughtful. I'm not stupid. You know, no, I know what stupid. I want. You're going to you write know? this article when you go home. Oh God, let's modern love. Somebody there. call Daniel. Call him right now. <laughs> that was just great. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, completely. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.